As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Hello, Monty here with you for this episode of On Farm. I'm sitting here on the edge of our farm in Lauderdale and thankfully the sun's shining because it's been, I wouldn't even say four seasons in one day, it's been more like winter in May. But anyway, today's On Farm is very different. We're going to be leaving the fields and the pastures and the sheep and um, some of our more usual topics behind and today we're going to be dipping our toe into the world of salmon farming. This year marks 50 years since salmon were first farmed in Scotland. So this episode and indeed our next episode are supported by the Scottish Salmon Producers Organisation and we're going to look at how the industry has developed and grown over the past 50 years. In this first episode I'm sharing a discussion I had with three people with many years of experience in Scottish salmon farming. We're going to chat about the pioneers who set up the farms back in the 1970s and we're also going to hear how the industry gradually adapted to open sea farming. This episode will take us right up to the early 90s when Scottish salmon was awarded a very prestigious food accreditation. So I've got three distinguished guests with me today and I'm going to go round in my usual manner, uh, David. Hi there, um, I'm David Sanderson and I'm up in the Shetland Isles. I am no longer working directly in the industry, but I had 20 plus years of experience working in the salmon farming industry up until last year. So um, I'm still based in the Shetland Isles, but I used to run the office for the Trade Association here. Great to have you on board, David. And then it goes to Sue. Hi, uh, I'm Sue Cox. Communications and Business Development Director with the Scottish Salmon Company. Um, I've worked with various salmon companies, mostly focused on exports, uh, sales, marketing, PR. Very fortunate to start my career with uh, Marine Harvest, which at that time was a Unilever company. But I must say, it wasn't quite in 1972. <laughs> you don't look that old, Sue. I, I, I can see that over Zoom. Um, so last but no means least, Steve, it's over to you. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Steve Bracken. I live uh, near Spean Bridge. I worked for Marine Harvest for 41 years. I started in uh, 1977, so not quite right at the beginning, but yeah, certainly a fair, a fair old innings. I ended up finally as what was called business support manager, which was mainly dealing with customers, PR. Uh, a fantastic job, fantastic career, loved every minute of it. Well, we might come to you first then, Steve, because you've obviously been there, not quite at the, the beginning, as you say, but you were there in the very early days. Tell us a bit about that. What was what was it like in the very beginning? 
Well, I, I think talking to colleagues who were there in the in the early days, and uh, not many of them left, I have to say, I think the thing that struck a lot of them was uh, what they had to wear, because on uh, day one you started, you were given a like a Guernsey sweater, and a cap, pair of wellies, seed, and off you went. And uh, when I started, uh, yeah, six years later, it had moved on a bit, but not much, because on my first day I was given a pair of wellies. One was a size 11 and one was a size 9. <laughs> so I spent the best part of the day walking barefoot around the pens. Yeah, it was a very, very sort of fun time, exciting. It was, it was pioneering. And it, somebody once described it as, yeah, making up as you went along and really just winging it. And there was a lot of truth in that because we were fortunate in Marine Harvest at that time to be owned by Unilever. And they had a fantastic team of scientists and researchers based in the south of England who would come up to Loch Islet, where I was based, and they would put all their science and technology into different ideas that the farmers had. And back then, there was a huge amount of enthusiasm and passion and hard work amongst the, the farm team to take things forward. Huge number of mistakes made, but a huge number of learnings made. Davy, all they had was maybe a, a pair of wellies and a, and a heavy jumper and they, and they just put some fish in the water and got on with it. Is that kind of how it worked? It was a very pragmatic industry. You looked at what was not working right and you looked at how you could tinker with it and improve it. And all the time, nothing stood still for two minutes. That kind of entrepreneurial spirit is maybe something that the industry needs to try to to continue to nurture because it was extremely important at the outset. In the island community that I live in, everybody is very well tuned to the sea and the maritime environment. So they've got extremely uh, good experience in all sorts of, I suppose, maritime affairs. So a lot of them came with different types of experience that were very easily transferred into the salmon farming industry. And that's how I think they were hitting the road running. They were quite they were quite up for it. They, they knew what they were about. They knew where to go. They knew the waters like the back of their hand and they had a lot of boat experience. So they were very good at um, just going out there and, and really applying themselves very, very readily to what was on offer. And I think it's a lovely success story, isn't it? For Sorry, Sue, yeah, come in. HIDB yeah. and, you know, the whole um, investment behind it. Uh, it's... Uh, was very much fitting in with people's way of lives, whether it be crofting or in fisheries or whatever. To think that it's only a short period of time, really, since it started, it's incredible how it's come on. I mean, it really is a super success. Yeah, it sounds like things had come on even in the, the sort of five, six years before you joined, Steve. What do you remember? What did it look like? What did the farms look like? What was there? What was what were the fish like? Yeah, it, it, it was all fairly basic in farming terms because... You, you would turn up on a day and say, right, how are we going to do this, guys? You know, bearing in mind there were no standard operating procedures, no manuals, handbooks, and no other companies that you could go to to ask them, you know, do you have this bit of kit? You'd either have to, to, to make it or, or, or get somebody locally to make it, perhaps, and see how you got on with it. In terms of the farm itself, yeah, we, we had boats that were um, wooden clinker seaweed boats, with an inboard diesel engine. And uh, when I started, I, I should confess that I'd never driven a boat before. And, and so this, this sort of shows you the level of training and induction that, that you, you were given. Where, where I, did you come from? Sorry. I came from Edinburgh, so a uh -huh. bit of a townie, really. I obviously passed the interview, and the, 
the job was to be as a fish farm assistant, but I was given the, the role, uh, very boldly I thought, of a fish farm supervisor. Before all of that, I, I was working as a, as a porter driver in uh, a Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh, and okay. I used to stop off at George IV Library to look at the newspapers, because obviously back then, there were only newspapers to, to, to find jobs in. There was no, no, no internet, anything like that. Uh, so I came across this small advert in the Open Times for fish farm assistants wanted. And I had no idea what that was, but I thought, I'll write and just see what happens. So again, you couldn't do any research online. There was nobody to talk to about it. Anyway, I got a letter back and it was on a Unilever letter-headed notepaper. So I thought, oh, this, this might be, be quite good. So yeah, after the interview, uh, started work. <laughs> First day, the Monday, a group of guys, four or five guys, and you're in charge of them. Uh, no man management skills, no boat driving skills. Yeah, you just got to get on with it. And they were a great team of guys because they were very patient. And, you know, basically within about 20 minutes, you were able to drive the boat. Now, how safe that was, <laughs> uh, you know, I wouldn't like to say. But you could do it. You could master the skills. But I think that highlights the difference between then and now, where I wouldn't get a foot in the door to, to run a modern fish farm today. You know, to just more or less walk off the street and do that. You've got to have a high level of skill and knowledge to be able to run a, a modern day fish farm. But back then, I suppose you were creating the standards which are now part of what we do today. Yeah, you were you were creating it. You were you were pioneering. And David, what was the community reaction? What were, what was going on? You know, we're hearing names like Unilever, etc. But obviously, you know, these are big players, and they, and they they were coming into the market, but. Was it like the Wild West? Was it like an oil rush? What was, what was happening on the islands and, and, and on the, the West Coast? It wasn't like that, really. But Sue, Sue mentioned something there which is very important. There was an awful lot of encouragement through what was known as the Highlands and Islands Development Board. Um, they were quite instrumental in, in encouraging people who were effectively crofters. They effectively had a scheme developed whereby any crofter who was interested could actually acquire a licence to establish a site on his foreshore. And that's how it became a very structured approach. So if any crofter was interested, HIDB would encourage them to apply for a license. The local council would effectively administer that with a piece of paper. And um, there were people who knew enough at that point because of the fact that in the Isles it started a little bit later than, than in the early 70s. There was already knowledge of what was going on in other parts of the West Coast. So there was a, there was a ready-made model for how you would effectively bring together a bunch of pens, move them in the in the, in the row as they have in Shetland rather than lochs, and you would effectively have the, the beginnings of a farm. Now, the local authority at that time had a system whereby they licensed things by what was known as a works license, and any individual company could only have three of them, and they were pilot licenses effectively. So you immediately encouraged quite a number of different companies to be established, because if you could only have three sites, that meant there was room for quite a lot of players. So very, very quickly, a number of companies were established. Not all of them were successful, um, but some of the ones that started at the beginning, they're still there in one form or another today. So they've been incredibly successful in terms of developing the business at pace. And as, as others have said, we've only been around in this business for 50 years. 
it's not long in, in, in any industry. It's certainly not long in farming terms. You know, when you think about, you know, I'm, I'm sheep farming and I could be looking at bloodlines that go back longer than 50 years in, in pedigree stock, etc. It's just, it's it's interesting. It's really interesting this, that, you know, there was this pioneering, groundbreaking, water-breaking, whatever, on the West Coast. And within not many years, there was a, a, a almost a recipe to take to the Shetland Islands, and 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 people were able to to replicate this, and and it and it sort of sounds like it kind of exploded. And then, Sue, you came into the industry in 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 the the late seventies, early eighties. Is that right? Yes, I came in in the eighties, and really from a different different angle. Totally, uh, my background was on the food side. I'd been working in London for magazines and editorial kitchens and wanted to come back up to Scotland where my family were from and came back up and I mean it was very similar to Steve's, Steve's experience. Um, my mum had actually been on a press trip and she'd been up to uh, Sky and said oh there's a new industry salmon farming why don't you try that and you know phone marine harvest. So I rang them up and they had a job and I went for an interview and kind of started the next week. And it's, you know, it's just unbelievable. What was that like then? Because, you know, you were a young girl at that stage and going into it, what what did that feel like? Uh, very strange because there actually weren't many women in the industry at all at the time. Oh. <laughs> so you just got on it and got on with it, really. But it was, I think what was so strange was it was a food, a food that we were growing and yet, there wasn't anyone around who had anything to do with food at all. And so it really was um, new times, but really exciting, great. And obviously, as Steve mentioned, with Unilever backing and everything at the time, there was plenty of opportunity. And we were working, we worked immediately on product development. And it was really the first sort of skinless, boneless fillet portions, little finger portions that we did because we realised that people didn't really like skin and bones and people didn't like touching fish. So if you could do something that people didn't have to touch, then it'd be more appealing. So, I mean, we produced these little oblong cuts of fish, which you see everywhere now. I mean, but that was novel. Uh, before then, it was always fish with the head and tail and all the rest of it. So we put these in a pack and we put cling film over them to look like a, a sort of supermarket pack. And... Um, we got, uh, managed to um, get a meeting at, well, it was uh, Marks and Spencer's at the time, just phoned them up and got a meeting, went down with our samples in a little cool box. Um, and actually, it was hilarious because my director, who I worked for, and I, um, who was just a tremendous chap, uh, he went out to the airport in advance and, you know, obviously being a director was in the executive lounge and all the rest of it. And I was left to sort of carry everything. And I had my little cool bot with the box with the samples. And of course, typical me, as you know from today, I'm always late. Always late. So I arrived late at the airport and grabbed the samples, grabbed my briefcase, went running into the airport and had to run over the flower beds because it was so late to get to the airport. Got up to where Angus was sitting and he just looked at me and he'd be watching me out of the window, running across with this cool box across <laughs> the flower beds to Edinburgh Airport. Um, anyway, we went down to uh, Marks and Spencer's, had to wait and uh, he was all very nervous about the meeting and I hadn't really, I was quite pleased to be back in London and, you know, made the change. Eventually got the meeting and the selector came down and she taught me at Cordon Bleu in London. So um, 
it was just tremendous and lovely to see her again. And um, we started from there with our skinless, boneless portions. <laughs> it was as simple as that. You, what was the thought process? Did you? We did quite a lot of market research on it and everything. So I mean, it was. And by that time, you know, we just felt so confident that it would work, and it was a new way forward. Um, and you began to wonder why on earth people did want to buy fish with skins and bones and heads and. Uh, not much has changed really in the last few years. <laughs> and so, Steve, that obviously that must have driven the, the the industry significantly. Then you know you're ten years in, as it were, and suddenly Marks and Spencer's basically knocking on the door and they're saying, "Yes, we'll take that." And it, that must have been significant. Absolutely, it's it's like you know you've arrived, you know you you've achieved a, a great deal in that time, mm. and you you suddenly end up with this this wonderful product. Uh, and I should say, you know, we, we had farming issues, still have farming issues today, but we had some fantastic fish. And then you think, well, what are we going to do with these? You know, because you, you can sell fish, but, you know, arguably anybody can sell fish, but you need this sort of cleverness uh, and, and just being very adept at, at doing something novel with the fish. And that's where Sue and, and, and her people came in. So... As I say, you've arrived I think, once you're starting to sell the, to the retailers, but there's really no going back from that either. So you've really got to up the game and keep on going. So it's, it's, it's a constant, really. You know, you, you can't slip. You've got to keep having that continuous improvement because they too were, are very demanding and want to see continuous improvement. Steve, I think one thing in it as well is that it takes three years to grow a fish up to a salmon or two and a half or whatever. So it's long term. And I think compared to other agriculture and other products, it makes the whole thing, obviously you've got a higher risk and that it takes longer, but it does put a different emphasis on everything, doesn't it? Can I jump in there actually? Because, you know, we've, we've sort of glossed over that. You know, what did you learn? How did you find out that it was going to be three years? Where did the, the stocks come from? Let's let's go right back and, and talk about the, the sort of farming process back then and, and what you learned and how you learned it and, and the, some of the mistakes that were made because it's it's incredible. I, we, we're already at Marks and Spencer's and, and in some ways, I, I just don't know how we even raised the fish yet. In, in the early days... Um certainly the, the industry that was, was trying to source eggs. So eggs were brought in from Norway, but also a huge amount of work was done on a lot of the individual rivers in Scotland. The Shin, for example, uh, the Lochie. Fantastic salmon rivers that provided us with, with um, the eggs that we could, we could grow on and develop our own stocks from. Now, it turned out that some of them were excellent. Others, for whatever reason, were less good. So it was a case of uh, selective breeding and, and getting on and just finding the best stocks that would work for us. There's a two-stage plan in, in, in growing fish. So you've got the freshwater site, which is where you're taking in the eggs, and uh, you're hatching the eggs to alevins, then fry, then par, then smolt. And that can take about a year, a year and a half, depending on water temperature, for example. So that's a critical phase, obviously. And once the fish is ready to go to sea, as a smolt, you can transfer it directly into seawater. And you can keep it there for a year, another two years, uh, and, and then harvest your fish, depending on how the, the fish are growing. But the idea is that you're, you're creaming off, if you like, the big fish all the time. You're grading your stock to take the big fish to market, first of all, leaving the smaller ones to grow on, and then you harvest those at the end. 
So for us, the, the cycles of, you know, two and a half, three years proved to be best. What farmers are trying to do today is just shorten that, but get the same growth and, and, and good survival. But one of the things that we learned from this was that if you kept on doing that on a farm, so you're harvesting fish and then you're putting in smolts beside them, if there's any infection on the old fish, it transfers immediately to the young fish. So we thought, well, this is wrong. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't do this. We can't do this. So we started to develop more farms and putting in fish into each farm a certain time of year and nothing more, just letting those fish grow on. But then what happened was we thought, well, actually, we've still got problems here in, in the sea, which were really down to a nasty disease called uh, frunculosis, which is now cured with, with a vaccine. And, and we had sea lice back then, probably from about 1975 onwards. With those two combined, it was a nasty, it was a real nasty for, for the farms. And what we realised was that it's all very well us putting our fish into a loch, a seawater loch, but we've got three, four other operators down there who are all doing their own thing. So we decided as a, as a group of farms to come together and say, look, let's do a fallow, a fallow of the loch, and then we all start again. So it's synchronous following is what, what we called it. And, and it worked fantastically well. And it's a standard now today in, in salmon farming. It's called all in, all out. So you're not mixing your year classes. So yeah, we, we learned the, the, the hard way and, and it's working well today. Guys, guys, as, as farmers do here, we're all getting a little bit serious, but there are, I'm, I'm guessing there's been some bloopers and funny moments as well and mistakes and goodness knows, you can't just suddenly put some fish in a loch and, and hope for the best without something going wrong. So David, you're giggling away there. What do you know about the, the good old days as it were? There's probably loads, but you have these chuckles now and again when, when somebody tells you something. It's quite a serious thing, but it's got a funny side to it, maybe. And I, I just recalled one time when the small group of farmers in Shetland, who were known as the Salmon Group, and they were very much small, independent farmers, um, got together for their annual do at the end of the year. They used to call it the Barnes Ball. You know, these guys were, they were doing okay. They were making a bit of money and they were paying good wages to folks. So they were quite well respected, as you can imagine. And they'd have their annual Christmas do, and basically they'd all get pretty damn merry like you do at Christmas yeah. time. And um, I remember at the end of the evening and uh, talking to one of them in particular, and I asked him what his outlook was for the following year and what he was thinking. And um, he, he'd had a pretty poor year, I think. And, he, you know, things were not good. That, this was a time when there wasn't money being made and, and there was a bit of disease around and, and there was things that were just not happening properly and um, he looked a wee bit worried despite all the drams he'd had and I said to him what's, what's your outlook and he said well you know something Davey um, me and my brother and my wife we're the partnership and our overdraft at the bank at the moment is two and a half million pounds and he just had a laugh he, he laughed his head off about it and I, I just thought oh heavens above I, I hadn't really appreciated the investment that that individual was making in what he was trying to do now um, obviously it's probably even more than that for some of the companies nowadays but that was just one one man and his brother who had a, a sizable overdraft and had to had to deal with that on an ongoing basis so that's the kind of scale that these guys were getting involved in even back then do you think so do you think they were they were working hard and and, and playing hard and I, I i'm asking you on that because you know you must have come up and and thought 
after the bright lights of London. What is this, and and where is any sort of any sort of lights and and atmosphere and what have you? I mean, what was it? What was going on? Well, and I think sort of sorry, going on from David's point, I think the key thing is that's why a lot of larger companies are now involved in it because there is such a scale um, in it. But coming up here, I mean, I've just been so fortunate to work in such an interest interesting industry, to live in the most beautiful place, to travel to the most lovely places within Scotland. I mean, everywhere that I farms are is absolutely stunning and what's even better is everyone who buys our salmon lives in beautiful places as well so I've had a wonderful career and traveled a lot all over the world to the most lovely places and um, they all love Scottish salmon. We sell um, to the US, North America, Japan, uh, China, Hong Kong, Thailand as well as Europe, all over Europe and really what we focus on is where there's a difference for Scottish salmon, where people appreciate Scottish provenance and where we can get a premium for Scottish salmon. So I think Scottish salmon's really led the way in uh, Scottish provenance and developing Scottish provenance throughout the world. And since the early days, we've always been really focused on developing exports um, and being out out there um, and bringing value back to Scotland. That's what it's all about, keeping schools open, keeping uh, jobs in our local areas uh, and some of the very remote areas of the west coast of Scotland and the Hebrides. And that's really important and that's what makes it all tick. You, you, you say we, you say we've always been good at this or we've set out to do it, but you know, you you were there. You were the one that had to go and, and do these deals. You went to do the Marks and Spencers deal. Was it, you know, you've been all over the world. Can You know, what was that like? What was happening? What were you, you were taking? Were you taking cool boxes to Japan? What was going on? Yeah, just about. <laughs> um, well, I went to Japan in the very early days and uh, met some uh, wonderful people there. Um, I remember one of my first visits, we went on a, a train and of course, I'm quite tall. And so I was sort of, it was really crowded and busy, but I was sort of head and shoulders above everyone else. And I suddenly felt this little hand on my hair and I've got sort of blonde curly hair. And this person, she'd never seen curly hair before. And I mean, that's not, I mean, it's a long time ago, but it's incredible how things have changed and moved on. You know that even the local infrastructure. I, I mean, it's not even brilliant now, but you were you were working right on the sort of edge of of infrastructure as we know it, weren't you? Really, and setting up an industry that then was, you know, selling to Japan and goodness knows where. Well, that's right. It, it did all take time, and and when we were harvesting fish in the in the early days, we had a, a new farm in Loch Sunnert, which is a, you know a little distance away from Loch Eilert, where we would pack the fish. So it was my job to take the truck and go down and uh, collect the fish from the farm. So I'd get down there about 8, 8.30 with all the bins and all the rest of it. And the difficulty back then was the communications. There was just, there was none of it. I mean, we didn't even have faxes then, but we didn't even have a landline into the farm. So when I got there, I'd have to say to the farm manager, right, we need two and a half tonnes of fish, please. And I'll go back and I'll phone and see if we need any more. So I'd take his pickup, the farm pickup, and drive five miles back to the phone box in Struntian and phone the sales office and say, do you need any more fish? And they'd go, yes, we need another 40 fish. And you'd go, another 40 fish, that's amazing. Who's eating all of this? So then you'd drive back to the farm and go, we need another 40 fish, please. 
and then you'd hear this, who's eating all this fish then? It would just, it would just go on like that. And then you realise, looking back at it, the fact that you didn't have mobile phones on the farms, you only had a landline, which wasn't there in the farm at that time. It was actually quite difficult. So that was one of my first journeys with, uh, with marine harvest. You think um, on the on that front on on infrastructure and remoteness and what have you and 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 Davy and and Sue you you're you're living in in these areas you've brought an industry to those areas do you think that that has in turn helped to you know, obviously it's provided jobs but has it has it made a big impact a big improving impact on the area Davy it's it's absolutely phenomenal Monty um, just to give you a couple of uh, sort of a, a fairly big significant things that, that maybe try and explain that. In the Shetland Isles, back in the 1970s and 80s, you had one ferry that was the con- contact, if you like, the lifeline between ourselves and Aberdeen. And that ferry went back and forth every second day. So you, you basically you could get off the island three, three days a week. And um, when fish became big in the 70s and 80s, and it's not just the, the, the new farm fish, there was also quite a lot going on in traditional fisheries as well. When that was building up, the volumes that we were talking about, especially with the salmon volume actually exponentially growing year on year, meant that you had to come up with something in terms of how did you get those fish to market. And the case was made that we needed to have much, much more capacity in the ferry service. Now, when you go back and talk to the folk who were running it then, which happened to be P&O ferries, the whole justification for the business case for a seven-day-week service or a six-day-week service came from fish. It came from salmon and, and whitefish. So the very fact that the islands have got a daily ferry service is because of the salmon industry. So that opened the islands up for all sorts of different business, including tourism. If you think about the, the opportunities that um, the whole island gained from that access to the market for fish, it, it's a really, really big thing. Back in the 80s, when the the Scottish fishing industry was, I suppose, being um, dismantled and, and there was a lot of decommissioning going on. There was an awful lot less fishing effort at the end of the 80s and the early 90s than there had been previously. And a significant um, um, uplift to some communities was the fa- effectiveness of a, a, a new salmon farming business starting up that could employ half a dozen folk on a site. And uh, there was an awful lot of employment opportunities that were offered up to people in remote parts of the Isles. And it's regular employment, it's employment day in, day out, season in, season out. And that's a benefit of salmon to the consumer as well. It's available every day. You can plan to have salmon next Saturday, you know, it's going to be there. Um, so We touched earlier on about the, the, the influence of the Highlands and Islands Enterprise um, Board. Well, if you talk to people in Highlands and Islands Enterprise, they'll tell you that salmon farming is the single biggest economic development in the highlands for the last 30 years. In the islands of Yell and Unston in Shetland, that's the two most northerly isles in in Britain, a significant amount of the economic activity is around salmon farming. There's traditional crofting, but there's salmon farming and a little bit of shellfish fishing, and that's about the size of it. Now, if the companies that are operating in those two islands in particular were to decide not to, um, as one or two folk have remarked know that long ago, you might as well switch the lights off when they leave because there's nothing else. So that's how significant it is for that uh, that most northerly parts of the British Isles. And I think the other thing is if you don't have people living and working in these areas, you don't have culture and then you don't have tourism. So you'd really do literally turn the lights off. 
and there's been some extremely successful businesses that have grown in the Highlands to service the core production that happens through the through the salmon industry, whether that be in haulage or engineering or uh, certainly in terms of some of the environmental services that we require. The opportunities for businesses in the Highlands and Islands as a result of salmon farming are off the scale. Yeah, I'd agree with all of that, David. I, I think that, again, just jumping back to when we started and we were trying to, to, to make our own pens, for example, our own rafts, our own feed systems, that kind of thing. Uh, you either had to decide, I'm going to be a farmer or I'm going to be a supplier. That, that's where it got to. You couldn't do both as a company. So you concentrated on the farming. And just as you said, these new businesses sprung up, giving you all the backup that you needed as a, as a farming company. And that's been fantastic. And today, the level of sophistication out there, I think, is just amazing. It's mind boggling. So it's worked extremely well. It's not just about the farming. It's that is vital, of course, but it's about all the ancillary developments companies have grown up around about it. We're going to move on in episode two and we're going to be talking about, you know, where the, the sector is now, where the industry is now, the, the sustainability and the, the, you know, the environmental awareness, etc. But there were obviously issues in the early days in terms of um, environment. Vaccines really didn't kick in until maybe the, the late 1980s. So, yes, there was uh, use of antibiotics, but we got through that, certainly for the disease furunculosis. Um, and there was criticism about that uh, because of the quantities that, that, that were being used or allegedly being used. And um, you think, well, we don't want this um, image being created. We, we've, we've got to find solutions to all of this. And, of course, it broadens um, the impacts, the benthic impacts, are we farming in the right locations in these, these sheltered locks? We actually need to move further out then to be able to spread spread our waste over a larger area to, to have it assimilated. But that's why today you, you will find uh, bigger farms, much, much bigger farms out in more open waters because it's a much better flowing environment. I guess when, when an environmental issue arises, it ultimately it's the same in farming. The consumer... It doesn't wash with the consumer. It doesn't wash with La Belle Rouge. It doesn't wash with the Royal Warrant. So you have to solve these problems, not least of which because you're a responsible farmer and you, you, you care for the environment, you, do, you care for your fish stocks too. But it is about if you want to sell these fish, you want them to be sold and you want people to, to recognise it's a quality product and, and, and live up to all these accreditations. So you have, to, you have to learn. And we've come such a long way. And salmon is the biggest food export from the um, UK. Yeah, I'm going to come on to that because again, Sue, you want to take some credit for that, don't you? Because if we rewind or if we fast forward, we've been talking 70s, 80s into the 90s. What's what's the story in 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 France? Well, it was the first non-French food that was um, accredited with La Barouge accreditation. La Barouge is absolutely the top quality mark and very well respected within France and um, particularly in the food service business with French chefs, but also in, in retail. So it really is the tops. The key thing about the accreditation, it's the actual taste that comes into account. Um, and it's when you think of all these technical accreditations for food, None of them really take into consideration that you actually eat it and it has to taste good and it's good for you. And this is the only one. I mean, it's just beggar's belief, doesn't it, really? <laughs> but anyway. The one other thing that, uh, that Sue was involved with as well was obtaining the Royal Warrant 
to supply Her Majesty with, with fresh salmon. And uh, again, this was a great accolade to have. Well, uh, yes, it, I mean, it was a lot of work. Um, initially, I, I made an appointment with, uh, with Buckingham Palace, with the chef there, and um, wrote and uh, offered to take samples uh, when I happened to be in London anyway. Much to my surprise, I got a response and said, uh, yes, do come and see us. So uh, next time I had the opportunity to be down, which happened to be quite soon, again, the little box of samples, which you could do in those days. I mean, just unbelievable. And round the side entrance of Buckingham Palace and um, knocked on the door and taken into this sort of outer kitchen and uh, met a charming chap who's the chef. And then we had to supply for several years uh, before we were awarded the Royal Warrant. Um, so, but that was the start of the supply and it was several years before we got on to the next stage. But yeah, no, it was great. I, I just can't get my head around it, actually. And I hope our listeners, you know, are, are following this because that's only a, a, a sort of 15, 20 year window that we've looked at in this episode. And we started off from a few cages in a lock and, and people not quite knowing what they were doing with these fish to La Belle Rouge, um, Royal Warrant, exports all around the world. It's pretty phenomenal. Sue, I'm going to give you the last words in this because you've you've been involved in, in basically telling this story um, from those early years right through. And it's obviously been a, a wonderful story to tell. Yes, and obviously salmon and fish are important but life's all about people. And I think there's the most wonderful people involved in the industry, um, both here and with customers abroad. And I think that's what's so enjoyable about it is that it's really taking a little touch of Scottish provenance around the world and enjoying working with people. So that was different, wasn't it? We were talking all things sea aquaculture, not so much the agriculture we would normally touch on, but I suppose you have to remember it's all farming. It is unbelievable to think that salmon is Scotland, indeed the UK's biggest food export, and that, that's just 50 years since the industry took off. Um, I think us in the land-based farming industry, I think we could learn a few things from our um, aquaculture friends. So in the next episode, yep, we're going to be looking at the state of salmon fish farming today, how it's addressing concerns around sustainability. I'll be talking to an offshore aquaculture farm technician, someone who's working on cleaner fish, which are little fishes that eat parasites off the salmon. Fascinating stuff. And I'll be finding out about a new use for fish farm waste. On Farm, we bring this podcast to you from the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And we're here to help with any of your PR, marketing or comms needs. Just give us a shout. That's it for today and bye for now.